Chapter 2 of Work, A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy. Work, A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 2 Servant. A fortnight later, and Christie was off. Mrs. Flint had briefly answered that she had a room, and that work was always to be found in the city. So the girl packed her one trunk, folding away splendid hopes among her plain gowns, and filling every corner with happy fancies, utterly impossible plans, and tender little dreams, so lovely at the time, so pathetic to remember when contact with the hard realities of life has collapsed our bright bubbles, and the frost of disappointment nipped all our morning glories in their prime. The old red stage stopped at Enos Devon's door, and his niece crossed the threshold after a cool handshake with the master of the house, and a close embrace with the mistress, who stood pouring out last words with spectacles too dim for seeing. Fat Ben swung up the trunk, slammed the door, mounted his perch, and the ancient vehicle swayed with premonitory symptoms of departure. Then something smote Christie's heart. "'Stop!' she cried and springing out ran back into the dismal room where the old man sat. Straight up to him she went with outstretched hand, saying steadily, though her face was full of feeling, "'Uncle, I am not satisfied with that good-bye. I don't mean to be sentimental, but I do want to say forgive me. I see now that I might have made you sorry to part with me, if I had tried to make you love me more. It's too late now, but I'm not too proud to confess when I'm wrong. I want to part kindly, and I ask your pardon.' I thank you for all you've done for me, and I say good-bye affectionately now. Mr. Devon had a heart somewhere, though it seldom troubled him, but it did make itself felt when the girl looked at him with his dead sister's eyes, and spoke in a tone whose unaccustomed tenderness was a reproach. Conscience had pricked him more than once that week, and he was glad to own it now. His rough sense of honor was touched by her frank expression, and as he answered his hand was offered readily. I like that, Kitty, and I think the better of you for it. Let bygones be bygones. I generally got as good as I give, and I guess I deserved some on it. I wish you well, my girl. I heartily wish you well, and hope you won't forget that the old house ain't never shut against you. Christie astonished him with a cordial kiss, then bestowing another warm hug on Aunt Niobe, as she called the old lady in a tearful joke. She ran into the carriage, taking with her all the sunshine of the place. Christie found Mrs. Flint a dreary woman, with borders written all over her sour face and faded figure. Butcher's bills and house-rent seemed to fill her eyes with sleepless anxiety, thriftless cooks and saucy housemaids to sharpen the tones of her shrill voice, and an incapable husband to burden her shoulders like a modern old man of the sea. A little room far up in the tall house was at the girl's disposal for a reasonable sum, and she took possession feeling very rich with the hundred dollars Uncle Enos gave her, and delightfully independent, with no milk-pans to scald, no heavy lover to elude, no humdrum district school to imprison her day after day. For a week she enjoyed her liberty heartily, then set about finding something to do. Her wish was to be a governess, that being the usual refuge for respectable girls who have a living to get. But Christie soon found her want of accomplishments a barrier to success in that line, for the mamas thought less of the solid than of the ornamental branches. 
and wished their little darlings to learn French before English, music before grammar, and drawing before writing. So after several disappointments, Christie decided that her education was too old-fashioned for the city, and gave up the idea of teaching. Sewing she resolved not to try till everything else failed, and after a few more attempts to get writing to do, she said to herself in a fit of humility and good sense, I'll begin at the beginning and work my way up. I'll put my pride in my pocket and go out to service. Housework I like and can do well, thanks to Aunt Betsy. I never thought it degradation to do it for her, so why should I mind doing it for others if they pay for it? It isn't what I want, but it's better than idleness, so I'll try it. Full of this wise resolution, she took to haunting that purgatory of the poor, an intelligence office. Mrs. Flint gave her a recommendation, and she hopefully took her place among the ranks of buxom German, incapable Irish, and smart American women, for in those days foreign help had not driven farmers' daughters out of the field and made domestic comfort a lost art. At first Christie enjoyed the novelty of the thing, and watched with interest the anxious housewives who flocked in demanding that rara avis, an angel, at nine shillings a week, and not finding it bewailed the degeneracy of the times. Being too honest to profess herself absolutely perfect in every known branch of housework, it was some time before she suited herself. Meanwhile she was questioned and lectured, half engaged and kept waiting, dismissed for a whim and so worried that she began to regard herself as the incarnation of all human vanities and shortcomings. A desirable place in a small genteel family was at last offered her, and she posted away to secure it, having reached a state of desperation, and resolved to go as a first-class cook rather than sit with her hands before her any longer. A well-appointed house, good wages, and light duties seemed things to be grateful for, and Christie decided that going out to service was not the hardest fate in life, as she stood at the door of a handsome house in a sunny square waiting to be inspected. Mrs. Stewart, having just returned from Italy, affected the artistic, and the new applicant found her with a Roman scarf about her head, a rosary like a string of small cannonballs at her side, and azure draperies which became her as well as they did the sea-green furniture of her marine boudoir, where unwary walkers tripped over coral and shells, grew seasick looking at pictures of tempestuous billows engulfing every sort of craft, from a man-of-war to a hen-coop with a ghostly young lady clinging to it with one hand, and had their appetites effectually taken away by a choice collection of water-bugs and snakes in a glass globe that looked like a jar of mixed pickles in a state of agitation. Madame was intent on a watercolor copy of Turner's Rain, Wind, and Hail, that pleasing work which was sold upside down, and no one found it out. Motioning Christie to a seat, she finished some delicate sloppy process before speaking. In that little pause, Christie examined her, and the impression then received was afterward confirmed. Mrs. Stewart possessed some beauty, and chose to think herself a queen of society, she assumed majestic manners in public, and could not entirely divest herself of them in private, which often produced comic effects. Zenobia troubled about fish-sauce, or Aspasia indignant at the price of eggs will give you some idea of this lady when she condescended to the cares of housekeeping. Presently she looked up, and inspected the girl as if a new servant were no more than a new bonnet, a necessary article to be ordered home for examination. 
Christie presented her recommendation, made her modest little speech, and awaited her doom. Mrs. Stewart read, listened, and then demanded with queenly brevity, "'Your name?' Christie Devon. "'Too long. I should prefer to call you Jane, as I am accustomed to the name.' "'As you please, ma'am. Your age? Twenty-one. You are an American?' "'Yes, ma'am.' Mrs. Stewart gazed into space a moment, then delivered the following address with impressive solemnity. "'I wish a capable, intelligent, honest, neat, well-conducted person who knows her place and keeps it. The work is light, as there are but two in the family. I am very particular, and so is Mr. Stewart. I pay two dollars and a half, allow one afternoon out, one service on Sunday, and no followers. My table-girl must understand her duties thoroughly.' Be extremely neat, and always wear white aprons. I think I can suit you, ma'am, when I've learned the ways of the house, meekly replied Christie. Mrs. Stewart looked graciously satisfied, and returned the paper with a gesture that Victoria might have used in restoring a granted petition, though her next words rather marred the effect of the regal act. My cook is black. I have no objection to color, ma'am. An expression of relief dawned upon Mrs. Stewart's countenance for the black cook had been an insurmountable obstacle to all the Irish ladies who had applied. Thoughtfully tapping her Roman nose with the handle of her brush, Madame took another survey of the new applicant, and seeing that she looked neat, intelligent, and respectful, gave a sigh of thankfulness and engaged her on the spot. Much elated, Christie rushed home, selected a bag of necessary articles, bundled the rest of her possessions into an empty closet— lent her rent-free, owing to a profusion of cockroaches, paid up her board, and at two o'clock introduced herself to Hepsy Johnson, her fellow-servant. Hepsy was a tall, gaunt woman, bearing the tragedy of her race written in her face, with its melancholy eyes, subdued expression, and the pathetic patience of a wronged, dumb animal. She received Christie with an air of resignation, and speedily bewildered her with an account of the duties she would be expected to perform. A long and careful drill enabled Christie to set the table with but few mistakes, and to retain a tolerably clear recollection of the order of performances. She had just assumed her badge of servitude, as she called the white apron, when the bell rang violently, and Hepsy, who was hurrying away to dish up, said, "'It's the master. You has to answer the bell, honey, and he likes it done very spry.' Christie ran and admitted an impetuous stout gentleman, who appeared to be incensed against the elements, for he burst in as if blown, shook himself like a Newfoundland dog, and said all in one breath, "'You're the new girl, are you? Well, take my umbrella and pull off my rubbers.' "'Sir?' Mr. Stewart was struggling with his gloves, and, quite unconscious of the astonishment of his new maid, impatiently repeated his request." "'Take this wet thing away, and pull off my overshoes. "'Don't you see it's raining like the very deuce?' "'Christy folded her lips together in a peculiar manner "'as she knelt down and removed a pair of muddy overshoes, "'took the dripping umbrella, and was walking away with her agreeable burden "'when Mr. Stewart gave her another shock by calling over the banister. "'I'm going out again, so clean those rubbers "'and see that the boots I sent down this morning are in order.' "'Yes, sir,' answered Christie meekly, and immediately afterwards startled Hepsy by casting overshoes and umbrella upon the kitchen floor, and indignantly demanding, "'Am I expected to be a bootjack to that man?' "'I specs you is, honey.' "'Am I also expected to clean his boots?' 
Yes, child, Katie did, and the work ain't that hard when he gets used to it. It isn't the work, it's the degradation, and I won't submit to it. Christie looked fiercely determined, but Hepsy shook her head, saying quietly as she went on garnishing a dish, "'There's more great works than that, child, and them that's been obliged to do em finds this sort very easy. You's paid for it, honey, and if you does it willin', it won't hurt you more than washing the master's dishes or sweeping his rooms.' "'There ought to be a boy to do this sort of thing. Do you think it's right to ask it of me?' asked Christie, feeling that being a servant was not as pleasant a task as she had thought it. "'Don't know, child. I sure I'd never ask it of any woman if I was a man, unless I was sick or old. But folks don't seem to remember that we've got feelings, and the best way is not to mind these here little troubles. You just leave these boots to me. Blacking can't do these old hands no hurt, and this ain't no degradation to me now. I is a free woman.' "'Why, Hepsy, were you ever a slave?' asked the girl, forgetting her own small injury at this suggestion of the greatest of all wrongs. "'All my life, till I run away five year ago.' "'My old folks and eight brothers and sisters is down there in the pit right now, waiting for the Lord to set em free. "'And he's going to do it soon, soon!' "'As she uttered these last words, a sudden light chased the tragic shadow from Hepsy's face, "'and the solemn fervor of her voice thrilled Christie's heart. "'All her anger died out in great pity, and she put her hand on the woman's shoulder, saying earnestly, "'I hope so, and I wish I could help to bring that happy day at once.' For the first time Hepsy smiled, as she said gratefully, "'The Lord bless you for that wish, child.' Then, dropping suddenly into her old, quiet way, she added, turning to her work, "'Now you tote up the dinner, and I'll be handy by to fresh your mind about how these dishes goes, for Mrs. is very particular, and don't like no steaks in tendin.' Thanks to her own neat-handed ways and Hepsy's prompting through the slide, Christie got on very well, managed her salver dexterously, only upset one glass clashed one dish-cover, and forgot to sugar the pie before putting it on the table, an omission which was majestically pointed out and graciously pardoned as a first offence. By seven o'clock the ceremonial was fairly over, and Christie dropped into a chair quite tired out with frequent pacings to and fro. In the kitchen she found the table spread for one, and Hepsy busy with the boots. "'Aren't you coming to your dinner, Mrs. Johnson?' she asked, not pleased at the arrangement. "'When you's done, honey, there's no hurry about me. Katie liked that way best, and I's used to waitin'. "'But I don't like that way, and I won't have it. I suppose Katie thought her white skin gave her a right to be disrespectful to a woman old enough to be her mother, just because she was black. I don't, and while I'm here, there must be no difference made. If we can work together, we can eat together.' and because you have been a slave is all the more reason I should be good to you now. If Hepsy had been surprised by the new girl's protest against being made a boot-jack of, she was still more surprised at this sudden kindness, for she had set Christie down in her own mind as one of them toppin' smart ones that don't stay long nowheres. She changed her opinion now, and sat watching the girl with a new expression on her face, as Christie took boot and brush from her, and fell to work energetically, saying as she scrubbed, "'I'm ashamed of complaining about such a little thing as this, and don't mean to feel degraded by it, though I should by letting you do it for me. I never lived out before, that's the reason I made a fuss. There's a polish for you, and I'm in a good humor again. So Mr. Stewart may call for his boots whenever he likes, and we'll go to dinner like fashionable people, as we are.' 
There was something so irresistible in the girl's hearty manner that Hepsy submitted at once with a visible satisfaction, which gave a relish to Christie's dinner, though it was eaten at a kitchen table, with a bare-armed cook sitting opposite, and three rows of burnished dish-covers reflecting the dreadful spectacle. After this Christie got on excellently, for she did her best and found both pleasure and profit in her new employment. It gave her real satisfaction to keep the handsome rooms in order, to polish plate and spread bountiful meals. There was an atmosphere of ease and comfort about her which contrasted agreeably with the shabbiness of Mrs. Flint's boarding-house and the bare simplicity of the old home. Like most young people, Christie loved luxury, and was sensible enough to see and value the comforts of her situation and to wonder why more girls placed as she was did not choose a life like this rather than the confinements of a sewing-room or the fatigue and publicity of a shop she did not learn to love her mistress because mrs stuart evidently considered herself as one belonging to a superior race of beings and had no desire to establish any of the friendly relations that may become so helpful and pleasant to both mistress and maid she made a royal progress through her dominions every morning, issued orders, found fault liberally, bestowed praise sparingly, and took no more personal interest in her servants than if they were clocks to be wound up once a day and sent away the moment they got out of repair. Mr. Stewart was absent from morning till night, and all Christie ever knew about him was that he was a kind-hearted, hot-tempered, and very conceited man, fond of his wife, proud of the society they managed to draw about them, and bent on making his way in the world at any cost. If masters and mistresses knew how skillfully they are studied, criticized, and imitated by their servants, they would take more heed to their ways, and set better examples. Perhaps Mrs. Stewart never dreamed that her quiet, respectful Jane kept a sharp eye on all her movements, smiled covertly at her affectations, envied her accomplishments, and practised certain little elegancies that struck her fancy. Mr. Stewart would have become apoplectic with indignation if he had known that this too intelligent table-girl often contrasted her master with his guests, and dared to think him wanting in good breeding when he boasted of his money, flattered a great man, or laid plans to lure some lion into his house. When he lost his temper she always wanted to laugh. He bounced and bumbled about so like an angry blue-bottle fly, and when he got himself up elaborately for a party. This disrespectful hussy confided to Hepsy her opinion that Master was a fat dandy, with nothing to be vain of but his clothes, a sacrilegious remark which would have caused her to be summarily ejected from the house if it had reached the august ears of Master or Mistress. My father was a gentleman, and I shall never forget it, though I do go out to service. I've got no rich friends to help me up, but sooner or later I mean to find a place among cultivated people, and while I'm working and waiting I can be fitting myself to fill that place like a gentlewoman, as I am. With this ambition in her mind, Christie took notes of all that went on in the polite world, of which she got frequent glimpses while living out. Mrs. Stewart received one evening of each week, and on these occasions Christie, with an extra frill on her white apron, served the company and enjoyed herself more than they did if the truth had been known. While helping the ladies with their wraps, she observed what they wore, how they carried themselves, and what a vast amount of prinking they did, not to mention the flood of gossip they talked, while shaking out their flounces and settling their top-knots. 
Later in the evening, when she passed cups and glasses, this demure-looking damsel heard much fine discourse, saw many famous beings, and improved her mind with surreptitious studies of the rich and great when on parade. But her best time was after supper, when through the crack of the door of the little room where she was supposed to be clearing away the relics of the feast, she looked and listened at her ease, laughed at the wits, stared at the lions, heard the music, and was impressed by the wisdom, and much edified by the gentility of the whole affair. After a time, however, Christie got rather tired of it, for there was an elegant sameness about these evenings that became intensely wearisome to the uninitiated, but she fancied that as each had his part to play, he managed to do it with spirit. Night after night the wag told his stories, the poet read his poems, the singers warbled, the pretty women simpered and dressed, the heavy scientific was duly discussed by the elect precious, and Mrs. Stewart, in amazing costumes, sailed to and fro in her most swan-like manner, while my lords stirred up the lions he had captured, till they roared their best, great and small." "'Good heavens, why don't they do or say something new and interesting, "'and not keep twaddling on about art and music and poetry and cosmos? "'The papers are full of appeals for help for the poor, "'reforms of all sorts, and splendid work that others are doing. "'But these people seem to think it isn't genteel enough to be spoken of here. "'I suppose it is all very elegant to go on like a set of trained canaries, "'but it's very dull fun to watch them.' and Hepsy's stories are a deal more interesting to me. Having come to this conclusion, after studying dilettantism through the crack of the door for some months, Christie left the trained canaries to twitter and hop about their gilded cage, and devoted herself to Hepsy, who gave her glimpses into another sort of life, so bitterly real that she could never forget it. Friendship had prospered in the lower regions, for Hepsy had a motherly heart, and Christie soon won her confidence by bestowing her own. Her story was like many another, yet being the first Christie had ever heard, and told with the unconscious eloquence of one who had suffered and escaped, it made a deep impression on her, bringing home to her a sense of obligation so forcibly that she began at once to pay a little part of the great debt which the white race owes the black. Christie loved books, and the attic next to her own was full of them. To this store she found her way by a sort of instinct as sure as that which leads a fly to a honey-pot, and finding many novels she read her fill. This amusement lightened many heavy hours, peopled the silent house with troops of friends, and for a time was the joy of her life. Hepsy used to watch her as she sat buried in her book, when the day's work was done, and once a heavy sigh roused Christie from the most exciting crisis of the abbot. "'What's the matter? Are you very tired, Auntie?' she asked, using the name that came most readily to her lips. "'No, honey. I was only wishing I could read fast like you does. I was very slow about reading, and I want to learn a heap,' answered Hepsy, with such a wistful look in her soft eyes that Christie shut her book, saying briskly, "'Then I'll teach you. Bring out your primer, and let's begin at once.' "'Dear child, it's awful hard work to put learning in my old head.' "'and I wouldn't set such a thing from you, "'only I needs this sort of help so bad, "'and I can trust you'd give it to me as I wants it.' "'Then, in a whisper that went straight to Christie's heart, "'Hepsy told her plan and showed what help she craved. "'For five years she had worked hard "'and saved her earnings for the purpose of her life. "'When a considerable sum had been hoarded up, "'she confided it to one whom she believed to be a friend "'and sent him to buy her old mother. 
but he proved false, and she never saw either mother or money. It was a hard blow, but she took heart and went to work again, resolving this time to trust no one with the dangerous part of the affair. But when she had scraped together enough to pay her way, she meant to go south and steal her mother at the risk of her life. I don't want much money, but I must know a little about readin' and countin' up, else I'll get lost and cheated. You'll help me do this, honey, and I'll bless you all my days, and so will my old mammy if I ever gets her safe away." With tears of sympathy shining on her cheeks, and both hands stretched out to the poor soul who implored this small boon of her, Christie promised all the help that in her lay, and kept her word religiously. From that time Hepsy's cause was hers. She laid by a part of her wages for old Mammy. She comforted Hepsy with happy prophecies of success, and taught with an energy and skill she had never known before. Novels lost their charm now, for Hepsy could give her a comedy and tragedy surpassing anything she found in them, because truth stamped her tales with a power and pathos the most gifted fancy could but poorly imitate. The select receptions upstairs seemed duller than ever to her now, and her happiest evenings were spent in the tidy kitchen, watching Hepsy laboriously shaping A's and B's, or counting up on her worn fingers the wages they had earned by months of weary work that she might purchase one treasure, a feeble old woman, worn out with seventy years of slavery far away there in Virginia. For a year Christie was a faithful servant to her mistress, who appreciated her virtues, but did not encourage them. A true friend to poor Hepsy, who loved her dearly, and found in her sympathy and affection a solace for many griefs and wrongs. But Providence had other lessons for Christie, and when this one was well learned, she was sent away to learn another phase of woman's life and labor. While their domestics amused themselves with privy conspiracy and rebellion at home, Mr. and Mrs. Stewart spent their evenings in chasing that bright bubble called social success, and usually came home rather cross, because they could not catch it. On one of these occasions they received a warm welcome, for as they approached the house smoke was seen issuing from an attic window, and flames flickering behind the half-drawn curtain. Bursting out of the carriage with his usual impetuosity, Mr. Stewart let himself in and tore upstairs shouting, FIRE! like an engine company. In the attic Christie was discovered lying dressed upon her bed, asleep or suffocated by the smoke that filled the room. A book had slipped from her hand, and in falling had upset the candle on a chair beside her. A long wick leaned against the cotton gown hanging on the wall, and a greater part of Christie's wardrobe was burning brilliantly. "'I forbade her to keep the gas lighted so late, and see what the deceitful creature has done with her private candle,' cried Mrs. Stewart, with a shrillness that roused the girl from her heavy sleep more effectually than the anathemas Mr. Stewart was fulminating against the fire." Sitting up, she looked dizzily about her. The smoke was clearing fast, a window having been opened, and the tableau was a striking one. Mr. Stewart, with an excited countenance, was dancing frantically on a heap of half-consumed clothes, pulled from the wall. He had not only drenched them with water from bowl and pitcher, but had also cast those articles upon the pile like extinguishers, and was skipping among the fragments with an agility which contrasted with his stout figure in full evening costume, and his besmirched face made the sight irresistibly ludicrous. 
Mrs. Stewart, though in her most regal array, seemed to have left her dignity downstairs with her opera cloak, for with skirts gathered closely about her, tiara all askew, and face full of fear and anger, she stood upon a chair and scolded like any shrew. The comic overpowered the tragic, and being a little hysterical with the sudden alarm, Christie broke into a peal of laughter that sealed her fate. "'Look at her! Look at her!' cried Mrs. Stewart, gesticulating on her perch as if about to fly. "'She has been at the wine, or lost her wits. She must go, Horatio, she must go. I cannot have my nerves shattered by such dreadful scenes. She is too fond of books, and it has turned her brain. Hepsy can watch her to-night, and at dawn she shall leave the house for ever.' "'Not till after breakfast, my dear. Let us have that in comfort, I beg.' panted Mr. Stewart, sinking into a chair exhausted with the vigorous measures which had quenched the conflagration. Christie checked her untimely mirth, explained the probable cause of the mischief, and penitently promised to be more careful for the future. Mr. Stewart would have pardoned her on the spot, but Madame was inexorable, for she had so completely forgotten her dignity that she felt it would be impossible to ever recover it in the eyes of this disrespectful menial. Therefore she dismissed her with a lecture that made both mistress and maid glad to part. She did not appear at breakfast, and after that meal Mr. Stewart paid Christie her wages, with a solemnity which proved that he had taken a curtain lecture to heart. There was a twinkle in his eye, however, as he kindly added a recommendation, and after the door closed behind him Christie was sure that he exploded into a laugh at the recollection of his last night's performance. This lightened her sense of disgrace very much, so, leaving a part of her money to repair damages, she packed up her dilapidated wardrobe, and making Hepsy promise to report progress from time to time, Christie went back to Mrs. Flint's to compose her mind, and be ready a la macabre for something to turn up. End of chapter 2